This is Lancaster, global research tales from the north of England. The forensic anthropology work that I do really came about because I'm an anatomist to trade and I wanted to be able to translate the work that I was doing into anatomy into real world problems. And that led me into the forensic anthropology field. And in the early days, that was very much about the identification of the human or what remains of the human for medical legal purposes. But then there was one case in 2006 where a police force, actually the Metropolitan Police Force, got in touch with me and said, we've got a case and we're really struggling to find somebody who can help us with it. And we thought if we're scraping the bottom of the barrel for experts, we'd come and talk to you. And that tells you about the level of relationship that I have with some of my police forces. And it was a case of a young girl and she alleged that her father came into her bedroom at night and he sexually interfered with her. And she told her mother and her mother didn't believe her. She told her that she was making it up. So a very brave young woman, she put on her camera on her computer. And if you do that and you switch the lights off, your camera automatically switches into near infrared mode, which I suspect she didn't know, but it was a really fortuitous thing that it did. So at half past four in the morning, and bearing in mind she knew that to record this, she was going to have to go through another episode of abuse. And at half past four in the morning, we see her lying on her bed and we see uh, just the hand and the forearm of an individual coming into the field of camera, doing exactly what she said was happening to her. Really brave young lady. She then takes that um, video and takes it to the police force. And she says, this is what's happening to me at home. And it's my father that's doing it. And of course, all they have is a photograph, a near infrared of an individual's hand and forearm. And they said to me, what can you do with it? And I said, I have absolutely no idea because normally I don't work on living individuals. I normally work on the deceased, but I am an anatomist. And I know that when near infrared light shines on human skin, it interacts with the deoxygenated blood in your veins. And as a result, your veins stand out like black lines. So you can see them really clearly on an image. And if you look on this image, the still of the image, you can see the vein patterns on the forearm of the offender. And I said, now what I know as an anatomist is that the vein pattern you have on your right side is different to the vein pattern that you have on your left side. We are not symmetrical at all when it comes to our cardiovascular system. And they said, well, that's really interesting, but what does it mean? And I said, well, I don't know what it means, but what I can tell you is if I can compare the vein pattern on your suspect with the vein pattern on the offender and they don't match, I can tell you with 100% certainty, this is not the same person and you can exclude them. But if the patterns match, I can't tell you what that means other than you can't exclude them because we don't know how frequently that pattern of veins occurs in a population. And so the police said, well, actually, you know, even if we could just exclude dad, that would be a step forward. And so we took two sets of images, the image from the offending video that the girl had recorded and the photographs that the police had taken of father in custody. And we were able to compare the vein patterns that we could see and they were a perfect match. 
So all I could say to them was, I cannot exclude dad, but I can't tell you what the likelihood or the chance is that your suspect and your offender are the same person. And they said, well, let's take it to court and let's see what the courts say. Now, that's a really difficult place for a scientist because suddenly you're on trial and your opinion is on trial. And so when I went into court, the judge called the voir dire, which means he he asked the jury to leave the courtroom so that he could decide whether he would allow that evidence to be admitted into his courtroom. And what he fundamentally said to me was, I want to be able to determine whether this is science or witchcraft. So is there really any basis to what you're saying? And I was able to talk to him about the study of human anatomy and how established that's been since Vesalius in the 1500s. I talked, I could talk to him about variation in superficial vein patterns and why that occurs. I could talk to him about the security industry and how we use vein patterns to allow us to gain access into highly secure areas. And he decided on the basis of both the anatomical information and the biometrics information that he would allow our evidence to be heard in court. And that was the first time it had ever been heard in a UK court. So I gave the evidence, the jury went away to deliberate and they came back and they found dad not guilty. And I had a real problem with that because I thought, what, what did I not do? How was I not able to convince the jury that somebody in the room at half past four in the morning doing exactly what she said was happening to her, that she said was her father, who has the same vein pattern, how could they find him not guilty? And so I asked our barrister what I'd done wrong. And it was what she said that stayed with me and what really sparked the entirety of the research that we've done since. And she said to me, oh, I don't think there was any problem at all with your evidence. They just didn't believe the girl. She didn't break down and she didn't cry. And I thought, my goodness me, here's a young girl who was so brave to accuse her father to then go through another episode of abuse so she could record it, so she could go to the police to sit through a courtroom and then to not be believed because she didn't break down. And I felt on that day that science had not served her well, that perhaps we had gone into court a little bit too early, but it was the real impetus that allowed us to show that the research was desperately needed. And obviously I can't tell anybody what her name is because dad was found not guilty. But hopefully she's still alive. Now, what I mean by that is, of course, she went home. Her father would have been released back into the family home. And I've won no way of knowing what happened to her since then, whether he stopped doing that or whether he continued to do it. Did she run away? Was she on the streets? Is she still alive? I, I genuinely don't know. But my hope is that if we keep telling her story somewhere along the line, she'll hear it and she'll know it's her and she will get some comfort from the fact, although we couldn't help her on that occasion, it was her bravery, her bravery and her legacy that have ensured that the research that we now do has gone on to help hundreds of young people. That's a staggering story. It's a, it's a fascinating insight into the fact that you know, people think of I don't know fingerprints as the uh, you know the, 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 the a fail-safe way of identifying somebody to 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 work on the area you're now working on. That's I imagine by 
my logic and an extension of that becomes an, an even more um what's the word to sort of detail way of, of identifying people and where are you up to now with this this amazing research so we were very lucky what what we decided was we needed to have a database of individuals so we could start to look at variations and it's not just about veins it's about all of the other features of identification that are on the back of your hand because child sexual abuse is an unusual crime insofar as the perpetrator will often record themselves committing the crime. So if you're going to rob a bank, you don't film yourself robbing the bank. If you're going to go and murder your spouse, you don't film yourself doing that. But if you're going to abuse a child, often they will film themselves or photograph themselves because they want to relive the experience or they want to share that experience with like minded individuals or some individuals may use it as a currency to be able to trade and barter. So because we have a photograph or a video the question of, from the police is if an individual is holding these images and they're found guilty they will get a certain tariff in the court if they share those images with somebody else then the tariff goes up but if they're the person who's actually committing the crime then that is the most extensive tariff or prison sentencing that they can achieve so the police want to know is it this person? So we need to know how likely it is, given all the opportunities of anatomy that you can see on the back of your hand. And if you look at the back of your hand, you can see that the pattern of veins on your right side will be different to your left. If you're a redhead, you'll see the pattern of freckles are entirely independent. They're yours. They won't be the same even as an identical twin. If you look at the skin creases and the pattern of skin creases over your knuckles, they're different on every single finger and different across both of your hands. And there's also the pattern and shape of your nails and that little half moon at the base of your nail, which is called a lunule. So there's lots of features on the back of your hand about anatomy that we can identify. And we know how they're formed from different etiologies, different origins. And so when you can layer them one on top of the other, like what we call a, a multimodal biometric, then the chances of any two individuals having all of those biometrics becomes extremely rare. But we needed to prove it. So we needed a database. And it just so happened that I happened to be training police officers at the time in disaster victim identification. And I asked them, we had about 550 police officers going through our department, and I asked them if they'd be willing to strip to their underwear for me so that I could photograph their hands, their forearms and their arms, their feet, their legs and their thighs. We didn't go into the trunk and we didn't go into the face. And almost to, to a man and a woman, they said absolutely they were prepared to do that because they understood the importance of what we were trying to do. So that early database and being able to analyse that early database gave us the chances to be able to show to the court that we really could identify individuals from their hands. And when it comes to this appeal, I think you also made a wider appeal for citizen scientists and the 5,000 people as well. So from those 500 officers, did you find you were able to you know, recruit more people willingly because you know, the need to, to make this more robust in, in, in the eyes of the courts is, is so obvious, isn't it? It is. And, and people, I have to say, have been incredibly generous with their images. Now, it's important to say that when people send us images of their hands, we strip away 
all of the identification. By that I mean once we've got your images, we can't tell you what your name is, we can't tell you what your email address is or your, you know, your postal address or anything. All we're interested in is the image. And we ask you, are you male or female? Are you right or left-handed? Those sorts of things, but not features that are identifiable. So it means that our images are anonymous and we're using those to train computers. So if you imagine somebody doing my job has to sit sometimes and look at hours of videos and images of child sexual abuse. I do that, my team does that, police officers do that. And the toll that that takes on us as family people is enormous. So if I can train a computer to be able to say in this video, is there an image of a hand? then the, the computer can abstract just the hand bit of those images and we never need to look at any of the rest of it. And if I can then train the computer to say, can you find the veins in here? Can you find the freckles in here? Can you find the skin creases in here? Then that saves an inordinate amount of time as well. So we've moved from that phase of an individual looking at the hundreds of images to now where we've got a database of thousands, it's too much for any individual to try and abstract the information. We need the computers to be able to help us. And I'm delighted to say that we now at Lancaster have the largest database of hand images anywhere in the world. And that's thanks to the generosity of people who want this research to come to fruition because our prime purpose is to help to, to secure the safety of those people who are vulnerable in our society. Well, it's a fantastic piece of work that you're engaged in. I imagine you personally can't wait until it becomes used in courts regularly. How, how close do you think we are to achieving that? I think we're a couple of years away um, because we have to do what's called black box and white box testing. And what I mean by that is when you work with algorithms and computers are um, it's just so amazing the way they work. And this is not my field. And if my team were listening to me, they'd be laughing their socks off because I sound as if I know what I'm doing. And in many ways, they are, they are the real geniuses behind this because they understand the mathematics. But black box testing often happens with algorithms in that you don't know why the mechanism you're, you're engaged with is working. It just does and you can reiterate and make changes so that you make step changes in how reliable it is. That's unacceptable for a court because if you're taking evidence into the courtroom, you have to have what we call a white box. And that means everybody has to understand exactly what the computer has done to be able to abstract this image or to be able to find the veins so that any other expert can pick up your algorithm and test it. And that's really important in the courtroom that your approach can be tested by others, because it's only then quite rightly that the court will allow it in, because then it can be authenticated by other sources. So that takes time. And that's what we're in the process of doing right now. Your career has been extensive. We've spoken before about the work you've done with war crimes and you know, a, a vast array of criminal activity over the years. In terms of that, in the, in the league of where you think what you've achieved in your career, how does this rank? Where does it rank? Oh, gosh, that's really interesting. I don't think I've ever really thought about it ranking on what's what's important, because I, I suppose I think all of it's important. And I mean that by if, if we're identifying a body that is found on a hillside, 
for that family, that's the most important thing you can do because you're attaching a name back to a body because often in death they get separated. Our job is to bring them back together again. If we can put the name to the body, that really helps. And for that family, it brings them that closure that says bad news, but it is your son, it is your mother. And that false hope that they have now becomes a reality. So, so for me, on an individual level, that is so important. But on a war crimes investigation, when you are taking, collecting the evidence and it's going into the courts where it's being heard against Slobodan Milosevic or whomsoever. I mean, we're seeing war crimes allegedly going on in Ukraine. Will we see the same thing? Possibly. I don't know. You know, that happens at a national and an international level, but it's still happening to individual families as well. And when you talk to people who have been abused as a child, it is a lifetime sentence for them. Whilst the perpetrator may get five years or 10 years in prison, the victim lives with it for their entire life. It's almost impossible to say which ranks more important than the other because, you know, they, they all do. And just to be able to offer even a little bit of help in situations that are as important as that is hugely humbling. And it really is a privilege and an honour to be allowed in to try and help in these situations where people are at their, you know, their, their grief is at the highest level. And maybe you can help to bring a little bit of resolution there. I have loved every single moment I've been at Lancaster. Lancaster has taken me to its heart. It really has. And I am a victim of the Pendle curse which is, of course, once you come to Lancaster, you never really leave. And I don't want to leave. And I wasn't looking for another job. I genuinely wasn't. I thought I would retire out of Lancaster, um, see my grant through until December of 24 and then retire. But COVID came along and um, I, I also was very, very honoured to be taken into the House of Lords. And I found it really difficult to try and do the House of Lords work from Lancaster. So it seemed logical to be a little bit closer in the south. And the job came along as president at St John's College in Oxford. And I thought, well, I've never been a president before, so let's see what that's like. And that's that's my next chapter. And it's it's hugely exciting. But the Pendle curse, I'm not leaving Lancaster because my research team will be staying here. And so I will be traveling up and down to them. And that for me is the best of both worlds. Thanks for listening to This is Lancaster, global research tales from the north of England. To listen to more, just search podcasts at Lancaster University.